My message today is asking and maybe partly answering a question. I just mainly like to raise questions. And that is, who is saved and how many are saved? (laughs) The Bible tells us two things about salvation, which on the surface we may have a hard time fitting together. One thing it says is the way is narrow and few find it. And the other thing is it says that salvation is universal, inclusive of the cosmos and all peoples. And I think there's two sorts of Christianity that have developed uh, emphasizing one of these two ways. One brand of Christianity focuses on the passages which describe a narrow path. And they presume that all who do not find this path will burn in hell forever. And this group is focused on evangelism, personal salvation, uh, going to heaven. Faith and I, we just watched, actually Netflix has a movie um, about Carlton Pearson, uh, who was, I guess, uh, Oral Roberts' kind of chosen you know, son. He was a black preacher in Tulsa. And he was on the board of Oral Roberts University and had one of the largest churches in Tulsa. And then he discovered all all of those passages in the Bible that talk about universal salvation. And he went to church the next day and he said, God has spoken to me that I think that uh, maybe uh, it's not that everybody... Is most people are going to burn in hell forever, but he says it says that everybody's saved. Now, I think that he got about half the picture right, but he's sort of a, a, a kind of interesting case in that he went from one extreme uh, to the other extreme. Uh, maybe this group would focus on passages like Matthew 25. Then the king will answer, truly, I tell you, whatever you did, not for one of the least of these, you did not for me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. In fact, that's not just one of the passages. I would say this is a key passage uh, for this group. Uh, There are just a handful of passages. The other brand of Christianity would focus on universal the universal passages that some assume are saying that everyone is saved and this group maybe is not so focused on evangelism as they would be on various issues of social justice and so this group there's about 47 passages i'm not going to read all 47 but uh look at you know first timothy 4 10 For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that they should all reach repentance. Titus 2.11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Romans 11.32, God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. 
Romans 5.18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Now, I could continue. There are about, uh, I think I've written down 30, so I decided I better not read all 30 passages to you. But you get the idea, there is this strong notion uh, in Scripture, even if you, you know, go to the last one of these that I've listed, uh, that in Revelation, death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire, uh, ending death for all. This is the second death. Now, if you were going to decide just on the basis of the numbers of Scripture, and I'm not saying that's the way we should sup- decide, the universal salvation has around 47 passages, and the picture of the narrow way, uh, I didn't count these, but it's much fewer. In fact, those that talk about eternal damnation, maybe the passage in Matthew, many passages talk about, several passages talk about exclusion. So, how do we do, you know, what do we do? we got these 47 odd passages which describe salvation as being universal, and those which describe a narrow way that few find. Can it be both? Well, it cannot be both if we're thinking of salvation primarily as a future missing of hell. And by hell here, I mean eternal torturous existence. The Bible cannot be saying most people are going to burn in hell forever, while at the same time saying that everyone will miss hell and go to heaven. In other words, that would be a direct contradiction. And unfortunately, I think this is the characteristic, the two characteristic forms of Christianity. That is, they make the same mistake of picturing salvation in future terms of missing hell and going to heaven. I think salvation is limited to the narrow and specific work of Christ... And at the same time, it's coming to include all of creation. Salvation is specific. Let me go through this. I believe it is only through Christ and the church that eternal life is available. Um, I don't believe in available light elsewhere. I believe a light is available only in Christ. So I think there's a very narrow way that salvation comes. I believe that salvation is enacted now. Certainly it will impact the future, but it's not simply the future, but involves our present putting off of sin and the way of death. I believe salvation is practical. It's following Christ, putting on the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering. Now this is not exactly an answer to the problem, but what is clear is that salvation in Christ just as I've described it, is for all people. And so I believe we need to emphasize both things, the narrow way for all. And I'm not saying we, can, may, not, we may not understand how to completely harmonize these passages, but I believe we can go a long way in that direction. And I'm going to do that now. The New Testament, first of all, nowhere describes the cross or the death of Christ as addressing the category of Gehenna or Tartarus or the lake of fire, what we would commonly call hell. Hell. Hail, we say in Texas. Uh, 
The, the cross addresses the problem of sin and death. That is, the cross uh, is uh, the, the focus of the meaning of the death of Christ. Um, and the orientation to death, definitive of sin, is what is you know, being undone in Christ. That is, sin and death is, and not eternal torturous existence is the problem. So the doctrine of hell as eternal torture existence for the unsaved, it poses an endless, and I'm being a little bit ironic here, uh, problems, and I believe this is foundational to a bad theology. First of all, you have an eternally angry God unleashing wrath forever against finite creatures with limited capacities and opportunities. And I believe this depends on a series of misunderstandings, and I would say outright heresies. That is, if you're going to believe this doctrine, in some way you're, you're going to be heretical at one point. The first one would be that this is connected to the innate, the belief in the innate immortality of the soul. That is, people believe that uh, human beings are just like a little piece of God, which one of my professors said once. Yet Paul tells Timothy, and this is in many places in the Bible, God alone is immortal. 1 Timothy 6.16, he alone is immortal and dwells in unapproachable light. No one has ever seen him, nor can anyone see him. To him be the honor and eternal dominion. We do not have life or existence in ourselves. We don't just go on existing forever if God does not sustain us. Life is only found in Christ. Romans 2.7 says, To those who by perseverance in doing good seek honor, glory, immortality, he will give eternal life. Only those who are found in Christ have eternal life. The other is that in hell as eternal torture existence, wrath in the Godhead is on a continuum in the divine nature with love. That is, God is both things. He's wrath and love forever. Is that what the Bible teaches? No, it teaches just the opposite. Psalms 35, his anger is but for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. Psalm 103.9, he will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. Psalms 106.1, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, he is good. his love endures forever. Uh, Psalms 118, his loving kindness is everlasting. Isaiah 12.1, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. You know, although you were angry with me, so I will give thanks. So there is this picture, a kind of misconstrual of God that is a part of a kind of Gnostic, or I would even call it a pagan Christianity, in which human rebellion and divine wrath are pictured as infinite categories. But if man can be forever in rebellion and God is depicted as eternally angry, I would say this is not the God of the Bible. I'd say this God is evil. Uh, Pascal, we have this picture of a kind of 
perverse God that he assures us that our existence is explicable only in light of the belief that eternal torment of babies who die before reaching the baptismal font indicates, you know, I think that that belief, there's really no difference between nihilism and faith. Calvin tells us that hell is populated with infants, not a cubit long. And he reminds us that within, you know, his idea of grace and predestination, that uh, he, really, that the choice to worship God or the choice to ro- worship the devil, it's more of a prudent choice. And this is true for many Christians down the years. The rationale of evangelization, of doing uh, of evangelism, has been a, a, a desperate race to save as many souls as possible. Save them from God. That is, that's the problem. The picture of hell, eternal torture is existence. What it, the salvation is primarily from God, not sin and death. This is Francis Xavier. You know, he dies of exhaustion, trying to pluck as many infants as he can from the flames. Hudson Taylor, very similar experience. I'm not saying they did not do good, but it literally drove Hudson Taylor insane. He lost his mind at the end of his life. Um, that Calvin had the courage. He said that divine sovereignty necessitates belief in the predestination not only of the saved and the dam- uh, but of the damned. That is, he's saying, well, God chooses everybody. You go to hell, you go to heaven. And even predestines the fall. And he recognized that the biblical claim, this is Calvin, yes, that, that God is love, on one of the ideas, but he must also be accounted for those who are not a part of the elect uh, toward the damned, that God is in fact hate. God is love and hate equally. So Reformed theology developed the notion, uh, this is where we get penal substitution. Uh, You know, the idea of appeasing God's wrath on the cross. Uh, The idea of uh, leaving the requirement of hell that, you know, for the great many would is, is going to, we're waiting for a final glory to reveal God's sovereignty. Tertullian speaks of this, the saved relishing the delightful spectacle of the destruction of the reprobate in hell. Peter Lombard, Thomas Aquinas assert that this vision of the torments of the damned will increase the beatitude of the redeemed. Um, Luther insists that the saved will rejoice to see their loved ones roasting in hell. I think in this understanding, God is a kind of malicious fiend, and the cross and redemption, unfortunately, are absorbed into this misunderstanding. God is love. John tells us. He is not a malicious and eternally angry uh, being. Uh, Isaiah, for a brief moment I forsake, forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. Isaiah 48, uh, or rather 54, Psalms 103. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. In an outburst of anger, I hid my face, but with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you. 
So he will, the, the picture in the Bible is his anger is but for a moment, but his love is forever. Uh, God is, and that's why you can define God as love and not as a mixture of anger and hate or love and hate. The other thing that you get in this doctrine is the cross as an instrument of divine torture, as if it is God torturing Christ on the cross. Uh, Human rebellion and divine wrath, you know, become infinite categories, and the cross and redemption then are all pictured as in some way on behalf of God. This, This has nothing to do with the New Testament. There is nowhere in the New Testament that describes the cross as addressing hell or Gehenna. The cross addresses sin and death. And the irony here is that, you know, in Christian churches and even in Christian church schools, I won't name the one down the road, um, there is the teaching that, uh, of a, a Calvinist understanding, even though many would claim to be anti-Calvinist. This is, in the first, this is true of one of my professors. He says, the cross is the place Christ suffers eternal hell on our behalf. He goes on to explain, this sort of suffering could be spiritual so that it could be infinite. In fact, he insists that it's a spiritual suffering. But my point to him was, yes, but if it's spiritual, then you don't need the incarnation. If it's spiritual and not both embodied and physical, you don't need the incarnation. You don't need the physical history of Christ. You don't need the, the necessity of the Christ's bodily death on the cross. On the cross. You know, Christ could undergo spiritual suffering in heaven. In other words, to follow this logic is going to put us very close to the anti-Christ position defined by John that says that anyone that denies that Christ came in the flesh is of the anti-Christ. Here it's simply, well, he need not have come in the flesh. The other thing is that with this doctrine, we have a focus on missing hell and going to heaven, and this becomes the entire focus of salvation. But the focus of the New Testament is from salvation from sin and death. But where eternal torture existence is posited, uh, I think that there is a kind of necessity, this kind of weights, the, the passages that explicitly explain the death of Christ, like Romans 8.1 that talks about condemnation, they are made to address a problem other than that which they explicitly entail. So Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What condemnation? Well, Paul has just spent chapters 6 and 7 describing that condemnation. There is nothing about eternal punishment. Uh, There is nothing about Gehenna. There is nothing about hell. But there is a lot about the problem of sin and death. that it's deception, the deception of sin towards the law creates what Paul pictures as a kind of living death. To read Gehenna or hell or eternal condemnation into this passage is going to complete, make complete nonsense of Paul's explanation of the problem. The problem is sin. The problem is that we are uh, uh, oriented to death. It's a present tense predicament that's defeated by Christ. 
Paul's describing the animating force of sin as it takes hold of a person's life. And to confuse this sort of condemnation, this kind of living death, with a future eternal condition is to make the condition of sin a kind of ontological reality in competition with life in Christ. To confuse the condemnation inherent in sin with an eternal state, I believe, is to believe the lie of sin. It is to eternalize, to reify alienation as if the lie the serpent told, you won't die, is true. No, that's not true. That's a lie. Paul pictures the body of sin as being reduced to nothing from whence it came, Romans 6, 6. There is a kind of reversal of the power it exercises. The lie of sin imagines there is life outside of God and Christ, and the work of Christ exposes this lie and undoes this orientation. So Paul's description, you know, he uses the terms the body of death or the body of sin is put to death in Christ for those who have died in Christian baptism. You know, think of the Lord's Supper, baptism, what is the imagery here? Death is defeated in resurrection. We die to death. So God continues to call us, and this is the language of Paul, Uh, He calls us out of nothingness. He called Abraham. He could raise up children from from stones. He, He compares it to creation out of nothing. The Christian doctrine of creation ex nihilo, it's a kind of picture of, of God's relation to the world. In the end, all things is in their beginning. We understand that all things are dependent upon God. And only from the perspective of this end can we understand what they are. We understand why we've been made. We can understand that God has called all things from nothingness. And he continues to create and call from out of the nothingness of sin and death. So maybe, this is uh, Gregory of Nyssa, maybe the cosmos has been truly created or finished being created only when it reaches its consummation in the union of all things with the first God. And that humanity has truly been created only when all human beings united in the living body of Christ become at last that, what Gregory calls that godlike thing, that is humankind according to the image. So for Paul, the negation of the body is negated in the work of Christ, which is in and through the body. That's why Christ had to become incarnate. He's overcoming sin and death as the human reality, not as a category, simply in the mind of God. Paul depicts sin as the infinite alienation, uh, as kind of absolute categories in a sinful understanding. But he pictures an end to this understanding. He pictures an end to this condemnation. So in the New International, or rather the New American Standard Bible, uh, chapter 8 of the section Romans 8.1 is entitled Deliverance from Bondage. The bondage to the slavery to sin and death is is what's being talked about. And so chapter 7 demonstrates how the force of the law and the dynamic of sin is inherently a punishing 
You know, that's the word condemnation there. Sin and death are the, the condemnation. Uh, which this bondage to this condemnation is undone in chapter 8. So this dynamic of condemnation is displaced. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is the gospel. We are under the condemnation of sin and death and we've been delivered through Christ. The kingdom of death is defeated and the law of sin and death is undone. That which enslaved humanity is destined for final annihilation. This is the picture in Revelation that Hades or death itself is cast in the lake of fire. Uh, The lake of fire is part of God's redemptive plan in that it finalizes the work of Christ. So we get a, a kind of interesting formula here. This hell is good news, right? Because death and evil are destroyed in, in the lake of fire. Now, I've, this is a kind of broad picture. I've not touched upon several passages. But next week, I'd like to just go through. We've got a few passages we may be thinking of. And I'll go through it and, and explain uh, the, how those fit in then to this picture. Let's sing our hymn of invitation.